A man was driving along a remote country road when suddenly his car stopped. So he got out and he opened the bonnet and then a cow ambled over to the fence and said it's probably a fuel blockage. Well, the man just absolutely freaked out. He jumped back and he ran to the nearby farmhouse and he told the farmer his story. And the farmer asked him, was that a cow with a brown spot over its right eye? Yes, the man gasped. That's Bessie, the farmer said. Just ignore her, she doesn't know anything about cars. <laughs> right. Well, in the Old Testament, there's a story about a donkey that talked to its owner. And here's the slightly shortened version. Balaam was riding his donkey when suddenly it turned off the road. And we're going to pick up the story in Numbers 22, 23 to 31. Now, I've said this heaps of times before, but just remember in the Old Testament when it says the angel of the Lord... It's just about always a manifestation of Jesus, and it is in this story too. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword, it turned off the road. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. So to add to all his other sins, Balaam was cruel to animals. Nasty. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under, under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You've made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. Amazing. Balaam's donkey talks to him. And what does he do? He argues back. <laughs> now we find the story in Numbers. And that's when the children of Israel were on their way to the promised land, nearly there. And it's like this huge group, several million people, had come to the territory of Moab, and they were about to pass through. Now the news of them had spread far and wide, and Balak, the king of Moab, so we've got Balaam and Balak, two very similar names. Balaam's our donkey rider, Balak is the king of Moab, and he was feeling very threatened by their presence, and then he got this bright idea of how he could weaken them. And so he hired Balaam, our donkey rider, supposedly the most powerful soothsayer in the world, to come and curse them. The Bible never calls Balaam a prophet or a seer like it does for true prophets. It calls him a soothsayer or a diviner. He's not the real deal. 
but he's noteworthy because even though he was a wicked prophet, he wasn't a false prophet. So Balaam agreed to curse Israel for a great price, and then he told the elders of Moab to wait overnight while he waited to hear what God would say. Well, God appeared to him and told him not to go because he, was, he explained he was going to bless the Israelites not to curse them. So Balaam turned down Balak's offer. Okay, so far, so good. But then that's when things started going wrong, and this was Balaam's error. When they offered him more money, he went back to God hoping to manipulate him to get him to change his mind. We could call it bending the rules or out-and-out disobedience. Balaam was one of those people, if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. You know, sometimes when a person is desperate to get their own way, you know, they've really got their heart set in a wrong direction, like Balaam, God will let them go. We see this in Psalm 106, when the children of Israel lusted after meat in the desert. God gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. They got their own way, but the end result among other things, was leanness of soul. Now, who wants that? Balaam knew what pleased the Lord, but what pleased the Lord did not please Balaam. So rather than obeying God, he tried manipulation. Now, if we ever get into that frame of mind, and sometimes we do, we know what God's will is, but we seriously don't want to do it. Just remember that God is good and that God is God. Let's try not to twist his arm to try and fit in with our plans because it's not gonna work. We need to change our mind to surrender and to fit in with his plans. And sure, it will feel like a sacrifice, but we will discover that God's will is the best thing for us. And a verse that's meant a lot to me at times, Romans 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, and that's the key word, prove, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So as we submit to God's will, we will prove that his will is good and acceptable and perfect. But Balaam never surrendered to God. I mean, sure, he spoke a blessing over Israel instead of a curse, but really, he had no option. Now, what would be the point of pronouncing a curse if God was going to bless them? That would make him look stupid. It would ruin his reputation. However, Balaam kept going along with Balaam's repeated attempts to get this curse from God because like Balak, he was hoping that somehow God could be pressured into doing a flip-flop. But God was angry, and that's why he waylaid Balaam and his donkey. But in the end, God let him go with that instruction to only say what he gave him, and hence we have these prophetic words in the Bible. Well, what did Balaam do right? Not a lot. But he refused to pronounce or to prophesy anything except what God said. Now, over and over, the leaders of Moab asked Balaam to have another go at divining the message that they wanted. 
But each time Balaam said, I've got to be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth. And each time the Lord gave him a stronger blessing instead of a curse. Well, what did Balaam do wrong? Hmm, well, he did that one thing right. But apart from that, he repeatedly gets very bad press throughout the Bible. For example, Peter said he loved the wages of unrighteousness. And Jesus said he kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. You see, Balaam was so greedy for wealth and prestige that when he realized that he couldn't curse Israel directly, he figured out this evil scheme to get his hands on Balak's reward. He counseled Balak, or he worked out a plan for the Israelites to bring a curse on themselves. He counseled Balak and the Moabites to entice them with prostitutes and idolatry. And they followed his advice, and they lured Israel, or some of them, into worshipping Baal and committing fornication with Midianite women. And as a result, God cursed them with a plague that killed 24,000 men. Now, right now, or this actually highlights some of Satan's tactics for enticing people away from God. For Balaam, it was the love of money. For the Israelites, sex and idolatry. And do you know what? Nothing's changed. This scenario happened just right at the time when Israel was about to cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land. Right now, we're crying out for revival poised as it were for a move of God and believe me Satan's going to be up to all his own old tricks to try and stop us and so we're going to be on to it we're going to walk in obedience and really pray diligently for God's protection now Balaam was an unfaithful prophet and his biggest issue of course was that he loved money more than he loved the truth Because for all this talk about speaking only what God put in his mouth, all he really wanted was to curse Israel so that he could get his hands on that generous fee that Balak was going to pay him. Now another issue was that Balaam did not respond well to his encounters with God. And this is really important for us this morning because we are in a season of encounters seeking for more of God, more of the Holy Spirit, a move of God, revival. So we'll look at these, the first step, encounters. They happen in so many ways, don't they? A word, a touch, a healing, that overwhelming sense of God's presence, a prophecy, a picture, you know, a word of conviction. Um, what else? a request to surrender something in order to have more of God, you know, more time for prayer, whatever. And what is the purpose of an encounter with God? Is it just a one-off experience, you know, a, a thrill, and we walk away unchanged? Or is that going to be an experience that we walk in that's life-changing from where we grow and go on with God? And you can see where this is going. When Moses encountered the Lord in the burning bush, he responded with faith and obedience, and his life was radically changed forever. But that wasn't the case with Balaam. You know, when it came to prophesying over Israel, Balaam's words were accurate, 
and they were recorded as part of the canon of scripture. But he was wicked to the core, and even though he had these powerful encounters with God, nothing ever changed. It's just so hard to imagine anyone being so out of it spiritually that when their own donkey talks to them, they just argue back. Amazing. His prophetic insight was blinded by the prospect of that financial reward. The love of money got the better of him. We read in Numbers 22:34 that his way was perverse before the Lord. And then God had to actually open his eyes so that he actually saw him standing there with a drawn sword, like, wow, you know, that's really confronting. But, you know, in the end, he walked away unchanged. Now, we don't want our encounters with God to end up so fruitless, do we? So how can we maximize them, you know, make them count and grow and go on from there? Well, the first one is probably our biggest issue of all, is simply to remember our encounters. You know, we really sense God's presence. He speaks to us. We respond, you know, God, I'm going to get into prayer, you know, for, for real. You know, really, I'm, I'm going deeper, higher, wider. My, my prayer life is going to a whole new level. And we mean it with all our hearts. You know, we're fired up. We're inspired. God has spoken. And then we leave. And somehow we leave the encounter behind. We never get to that pre-meeting. We never pray any more than normal. We just kind of forget. We're not necessarily being bad or rebellious or anything like that. Often it's just about having short memories. You know, if you think back to the children of Israel in the wilderness, they had the most incredible encounters with God. But it wasn't long before most of them fell back into their old ways. Instead of taking these amazing miracles to heart, growing in faith, being grateful, obedient, they did the complete opposite. They complained, they rebelled, they disobeyed, and throughout their journey, they repeatedly refused to believe. You know, every time they got into trouble, they immediately forgot how God had rescued them the last time they were in trouble. They really had short memories. And have you noticed in the Bible how often God tells us to remember things over and over? They say that elephants never forget, but it's a tall order for us human beings. It's tall and we have like short, short memories, short fuse, fuses, short, short, short. We fall, fall short of the glory of God in so many ways. We need all the help that we can get. And you know, the Greek word that's translated remember, you won't like this. It means earnestly make mention of, be mindful, recount, record, make to be remembered. Doesn't that sound like hard work? Hmm. So how can we remember things? Well, somehow, every time God speaks to us, every encounter we have, somehow we have to try and capture it by writing it down, journaling, however we keep records. Get into good habits 
A great way of remembering, as we all know, is by doing over and over, making a habit, creating a habit, making a regular time for prayer, Bible reading, tithing, whatever it is that God's speaking to us about. Now, untold years ago, I had an encounter with God at a seminar on prayer, and I was deeply impacted by those words, can you not watch with me for one hour? And I was challenged, inspired. God had spoken about praying for an hour a day. But if that was going to be a life-changing encounter, I had to obey. I had to work in it. I had to do that work of creating that habit of spending an hour a day in prayer. Now also we need to pray and enlist the help of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God to do these things. Faith is a key. You know, maybe we have an encounter with God and God speaks to us about healing. People do. But time goes on and it's not happening. And we have to remember, keep remembering, and exercise faith because the passing of time doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It's just testing our faith. So faith and remembering in that one. Obedience is a huge issue. You know, obedience and faith were always the problems for the children of Israel. And some encounters have that built-in obedience factor, especially when it's some kind of surrender. And in order to maximize that encounter, we've got to obey what God requires. And it might be to add something into our life. It might be to let something go, drop something off out of our life. Sometimes we can set up a memorial if it's that kind of thing. And the Bible has a lot on this. Feasts, fasts, rituals, special days, memorial stones, offerings, communion. And we can do some of those meaningful things to make ourselves remember. Post something on the fridge. Highlight a passage in, in our Bible. Put something up on the wall. Set up memorials, photos, keep a journal, whatever. Um, there was a professor of Greek called Dr. E.C. Norton, and he had this framed picture up on his wall, in his office wall, and it was made of burnt pieces of shirt cuff. And he kept it there to remind him, when he was a young man, he was tying two horses to a tree, and then the tree was struck by lightning, and both horses were killed. And he was thrown to the ground. His right hand and arm were burnt and paralyzed, but he survived, and then his arm fully recovered from that. Now, after his miraculous escape from death, he said, I guess the Lord must have something for me to do. And that's why he kept the burnt pieces of his shirt and got them framed, because he never wanted to forget that God had a work for him to do. And then we need to treasure and value our encounters and not just flick them off and move on like Balaam did. In Luke 16 and verse 19, we see the shepherds going to worship the baby Jesus in the manger. And then they go on, they go out and they tell other people. And the Bible says some were amazed, some wondered. But his mother Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now what was Mary treasuring in her heart? It was the words that were spoken to her. They were precious to her and she kept pondering and meditating like a 
cow chewing its cud again and again to get all the goodness out of it. Now, of course, Mary's situation is totally unique, but it shows, it shows us how to get the most out of a word from God or out of a prophecy by pondering on it, by treasuring it. And that's our best bet for making our encounters count. Now, how can we retain and treasure the words that God speaks to us? Well, if we came to church and someone gave us $10,000, we wouldn't work, walk out and forget about it, would we? You know, we wouldn't leave it lying on the seat. We wouldn't carelessly drop it in the car park. No, we would guard that with our life. We would treasure it. We'd be checking every few minutes to make sure that it was still there. And we'd keep it close because that would be valuable to us. And we have to somehow train ourselves to value God's word a bit like that. Now, Balaam had the awesome privilege of meeting God, of seeing God. This is very wobbly, I can't lean on it. And somehow, and being used by God. But you know, it didn't seem to mean anything to him. And we're moving on now because he loved the things of the world and he had no desire to put God first or second or anywhere. He was a man of great mixture, mixture. Now as Christians, we wanna put God first in our lives, but we know that that can be a challenge to say the least, it can be a challenge. We struggle with mixture. We love God, sometimes we love money even more. We desperately want a relationship with God, but then we're desperately addicted to alcohol, drugs, porn, gambling, whatever. On one hand, we're born again. On the other hand, we're weighed down with these feet of clay, so in the world. You know, that is why these encounters with God are so fantastic and so valuable, because God uses them to set us free, to heal us, to strengthen us. We so need them. Whatever we need, God can deal with in an encounter. But talking about mixture, once I read about a well-known TV personality who was murdered, and the report mentioned her Christian faith and the fact that she was living with her fiance. That is not a good mix. As a well-known Christian personality, this woman's life could well have been a stumbling block to weak and vulnerable Christians because for some people, the only excuse that they need to jump into bed with their boyfriend or girlfriend is to look at somebody else and to say, if it's okay for her, it's okay for me. Christianity does not thrive in mixture. Now we need to aim to set our hearts on the things of God and not the things of the world. Yes, it's a process, but right through the Bible, we're warned to avoid mixing godliness and worldliness, good and evil, the things of this life and the things of heaven. John 2 verse 15 and 17, just a few points from there. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, mixture can also be seen in ministry, and this can be very confusing for some people. Balaam accurately prophesied over Israel, and so true was his word that it's recorded for all eternity. 
Now, did that make him a good guy? Not on your life. He was evil to the core. Now, Balaam's the extreme case. We're not all that bad, but we're not perfect. We have to be very careful not to get taken in or beguiled by the gifts when the fruit is obviously rotten. Jesus gives us a key on how to get some insight into the inner life of someone who's ministering in the gifts. Matthew 7, verse 15 to 20, just some highlights. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. When we're wowed by the gifts, let's give praise and glory to the giver of those gifts. That's God. But if we really want a heads up on the minister, we should look at the fruit. Both gifts and fruit are vitally important. We need both, absolutely. But the Bible says it's fruit, not gifts, that give the outward evidence of a godly inner life and character. Now, Derek Prince used this analogy of an apple tree and a Christmas tree. And again, this is really shortened. Um, An apple tree has fruit and Christmas tree has gifts, as we know. The fruit on an apple tree is going to tell you what kind of fruit tree it is. I mean, if it's got apples growing on it, it has to be an apple tree. It can't possibly be anything else. And so the fruit on the tree tells you something about the inner life of the tree. But the gifts on the Christmas tree don't give us a single clue about the inner life of the tree. Someone put them on the tree. The tree doesn't grow them. They don't even tell you if it's a real tree or a fake tree. So likewise, the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating through a person's life don't necessarily tell you about the nature of the person. Now, usually, normally, anyone operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit will be a good and a godly person. But as we see with Balaam, in some cases, it doesn't always happen. Now, we've all got to make it our lifelong goal to develop good fruit in our lives. And just to tell you what that looks like, Galatians 5 verse 22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness or righteousness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and humility. Right, now moving on. Um, Now, um, Balak brought Balaam in to curse Israel, but of course he blessed them. And in his first prophecy, as he looks out over Israel and sees the great future and the blessedness of that nation, at the end it's like a sigh of longing comes from his lips and he says, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. Well, sadly... Balaam died a miserable death. He died a violent death at the hands of the Israelites. Joshua 13.22 In addition to those slain in battle, the Israelites had put to the sword Balaam, son of Beor, who practiced divination. Now the problem with Balaam saying, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his, is that he wanted to die the death of the righteous but there's no way that he wanted to live the life of the righteous. He wanted heaven without behaving in the slightest bit heavenly 
on the journey. Balaam desired to die the death of the righteous, but despite these amazing and potentially life-changing encounters with God, there was no room for God in his life. It's like he was thinking, I'll take the best and leave the rest. And where did that get him? Well, it's horrible, a violent and premature death and an eternity in hell could have been so, so different. In Micah Micah, um, 6 and verse 8, that's a verse that has the word require in it. And it's just one of many scriptures that make it clear that God requires his people to live godly and holy lives, to live in a way that pleases him. Now, our righteousness, we can't be righteous of ourselves. Our righteousness is something that we get from being in Christ, comes from Christ. But God requires us to live good and holy lives. Micah 6 and verse 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So God requires something of us. And that's just, as I said, one of many. We also read in Ezekiel 18 and verse 23, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is absolutely loving and righteous. And after all he's done for us, there's no way that God wants to see people die and end up in the wrong place. God wants every human being to die the death of the righteous. And in his love and his mercy, as we've heard in that great communion this morning, he's provided a way for us to do that. Jesus gave his life. He died for our salvation. But we have to receive it and walk in it. Balaam missed it because he wouldn't take the responsibility to do anything about it. He wouldn't receive it. He just wanted to live his sinful life and sneak into heaven at the last minute. Now, of course, people do get saved at the last minute, heaps of them. The thief on the cross is a classic example of God's wonderful mercy to sinners at that time. But you can't plan it that way. The death of the righteous is the beginning of a wonderful eternity with God in heaven. But to die that death, we've got to receive the way of salvation that God has provided. So what do we learn from Balaam? It's important to obey God, to do his will. We learn that we need to do, we learn that there's stuff that we need to do to maximize our encounters with God. We've got to watch out for for mixture because Christianity does not thrive in mixture. And if we want to die the death of the righteous, we've got to take the way that God has prescribed. And I'll now hand over to Pastor Steve to finish off. Thank you.